0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Last week, Vice News conducted an exclusive interview with Vice President Kamala Harris. The conversation was scheduled at a critical time for the Democratic Party because we're only weeks away from the midterm elections. But then the day before the interview, a group of migrants suddenly appeared at the vice president's doorstep. This was the latest in a series of efforts by Republican governors to target the Biden administration's immigration policy. Vice News chief political correspondent Liz Landers sat down with the vice president to get her immediate reaction and to check in on the Democrats' election strategy with less than 60 days to go. Senior producer Julia Nutter talked to Liz about that interview. So I'm going to let Julia take it from here
2: day that changed America. We're outside the Supreme Court after the landmark decision that overturned Roe v.ersus Wade and ended a woman's constitutional right to an abortion.
0: Migrants dropped off in Martha's Vineyard and outside the vice president's D.C. residence. The move, courtesy of the governors of Florida and Texas. A political message to blue states.
2: Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, abortion has emerged as a key issue in the upcoming midterms. The future balance of power in Congress will be decided just 60 days from today. I'm Julia
3: Nutter, a senior producer for Vice News Reports.
2: And I'm Liz Landers, chief political correspondent
3: for Vice News. Liz, it's so good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Hi, it's my first time. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So Liz, on Friday, September 16th, you got an exclusive interview with Vice President Kamala Harris. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about how that interview came about?
2: Sure. We had been asking to interview the Vice President for months, and after the Dobbs decision came down earlier this summer... I went back to her office and I said, I think our audience would really like to hear from the first female vice president about reproductive health care and abortion access in this country. And on Wednesday, we got the confirmation that our team could interview the vice president on Friday of last week. I flew on Air Force Two with her to Chicago, where she was doing a roundtable with Governor Pritzker and other elected officials talking about reproductive health care. So she did that first. And then afterwards, we had our sit down interview with her.
3: Wow. Quick turnaround. And I know the subject of that roundtable, women's access to reproductive health care, that's really where you started the conversation since it was fresh on her mind. So I'm going to play some excerpts of your interview with the vice president, and then we'll get into what to make of the conversation. Sure.
2: Madam Vice President, how did access to reproductive health care impact your career choices and your life decisions?
4: First of all, I am the daughter of a mother who dedicated her life to two things. Raising her two daughters and ending breast cancer. My mother was a cancer researcher. And so from the earliest moments that I could sit at the dinner table, the conversation about women's health was an issue that was the subject of passion and priority. And this, of course, is Everything about this issue is an issue about women's health, about women's right to access to health care, about women having dignity in the health care delivery system. Those were all the issues that I was raised hearing about. And the fact that right now we're looking at this situation where the women of America cannot make a decision with their loved ones, with whomever they choose, but instead their government making a decision about whether you're going to start a family, whether you're going to become pregnant, Um, It it is, on so many levels, contrary to everything I was raised to believe we should do as a system in terms of allowing access to care, but also allowing people dignity in the system. And one of the greatest sources of dignity comes with an individual's ability to make decisions about their own life based on their priorities, not the government or anybody else's priorities. This is such a personal issue for so many people. Do you feel like you have a full
2: understanding of what Americans are going through right now when it comes to reproductive health care?
4: I have a a pretty good sense of it. Um, I've been traveling the country, talking with folks of every age, every gender, every race, every demographic, and people are afraid. People are afraid because those who might get pregnant, are afraid of laws that are being passed that would criminalize them and punish them. People are afraid because of the fact that a constitutional right to privacy that had been recognized has been taken away. And there are a lot of constitutional rights that flow from the right of privacy that therefore are at risk, including the right to contraception, the right to to marry the person you love. Um, people are afraid because they're just trying to figure out how could this happen when there's so much that we all thought was settled. Like Roe, a woman's right to make decisions about her own body. I, we're looking at attacks on voting. People thought that was settled. And it causes people to be concerned that, well, what else am I taking for granted that perhaps I can't? Uh, in terms of just the issues that were resolved and settled. so. A lot of people are being impacted in direct and indirect ways.
2: One of your former Senate colleagues, Senator Lindsey Graham, introduced a bill this week that would be a 15-week national abortion ban. What would that mean for women in America, for people who want to have children in this country?
4: Well, first of all, it would be disastrous. Okay, that's the short answer. Let's also put what they're proposing in context. So when the Dobbs decision came down... The proponents of that decision said, oh, no, 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 we just want to leave it to the states. Well, within, I think it's only been about 12 weeks, now they want to make a national ban, which means that they're moving the goalposts, right? They're now saying that there should be a national ban, a blanket ban in all states. And and I think that people should pay close attention to the fact that that there's an agenda at play that really is about taking away uh, the individual right to make private decisions for themselves. Uh, Another way that I think of it is making decisions about heart and home, right? So in that context, privacy decisions, right? Contraception. Who do you marry? Who do you love? All of this is now at stake. And Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, said the quiet part out loud. He literally, in his concurring opinion, mentions the right to privacy and same-sex marriage as being then subject to and open to consideration for attack. This is serious. And for this reason and so many others, regardless of your gender, everyone should be concerned about the spoken and unspoken intentions of the proponents of a national ban and, frankly, of of the proponents of the Dobbs decision. Why didn't Democrats imagine that this moment could arrive in codify Roe? I think the most important thing we can do right now is elect two more pro-choice senators. And the president has been very clear he would sign legislation to codify Roe. And we need two more United States senators And then we are in a position to do exactly that, which is codify Roe, put the protections of Roe into law. Do you think that this should be the top issue that people vote on? I think it should be one of the top issues. Yes. The vast majority of Americans agree that the government should not be telling a woman what to do with her body regardless of who they voted for in the last election or the next election, regardless of the party with which they're registered to vote. There are just some fundamental principles at play here which are about freedom and liberty. Literally, this is about freedom and liberty. And freedom and liberty being attacked. There are a lot of election
2: deniers who are running for real positions of authority across this country. What if they
4: win? I... I'm aware of at least 11 states that have secretary of state candidates who are election deniers. So the very people who want to run elections don't trust elections. That represents a potential breakdown of one of the most important systems in our democracy, which is our election systems. And I urge everyone who is in those 11 states to pay attention, because there are certain rights that you have and your parents have and your grandparents before them assumed will be intact, including the right to vote for who you want and to know your vote counts. And election deniers are suggesting that those votes don't count.
2: Do you think that the sort of rolling back of reproductive rights in this country is a signal
4: that democracy is backsliding here. So I have, as vice president, met with and talked directly with, by phone or in person, 100 world leaders. Presidents, prime ministers, chancellors, kings. And one of the strengths of who we are as America is we can walk in those rooms, chin up, shoulders back, talking about what it means to be a democracy founded on fundamental principles, grounded in the concept of freedom and liberty, justice, equality. And so we walk in those rooms then, and we talk with other countries about the importance of human rights, about rule of law, and it gives us the authority to do that. Well, with that role as a role model comes the fact that people watch everything you do to see if it matches up to what you say. And countries around the world are now watching that our highest court took a constitutional right from the people of our country. They're looking at the fact that we have a tax on voting rights. Uh, I do believe that it challenges the strength of our ability to fight for democracies around the world when we have fundamental rights that are being attacked by extremist so-called leaders within our own country. I do believe it has an impact, not to mention another residual impact is potentially that autocratic countries, autocratic regimes can then say, hey, you want to talk about we need to be a democracy, you point to the U.S.? Well, look, they just took this right from women. We can, too.
2: Are we losing our democracy right now, are we in an emergency? I I hear that from people around this country. I'm sure you've heard that from folks, too. There are a lot of people who really think we are on the verge of moving
4: towards a completely different form of government. I want to urge us all to, to, to realize that there's kind of a duality in terms of a democracy and what a democracy is, meaning that There is great strength in a democracy because it's about protecting individual rights, protecting freedom, fighting for equality and justice. That's the strength of democracy. The other side of it is democracy is very fragile. It's gonna only be as strong as our willingness to defend it and fight for it. And so I say, We all have not just a a, a responsibility, we have a duty to fight for it. In Washington, D.C. this morning, two buses of migrants
2: arrived outside the Naval Observatory, near the home of Vice President Kamala Harris. All part of a push by Republican governors to send migrants to Democrat-run states and cities, something they say they'll keep doing, until the Biden administration stops migrants from crossing the Southern border. Yesterday, there was a bus of migrants that was dropped off in front of your home. Also, Governor DeSantis flew migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Can you understand the political point that DeSantis
4: and Abbott are trying to make here? They're playing games. These are political stunts with real human beings who are fleeing harm. I mean. Do you know what's happening in Venezuela right now? There were children, people being put on a bus or a plane um, who don't know where they're going or where they were being sent. Human beings, real people who have fled harm, who came to the United States of America seeking refuge, asylum. I think it is um, the height of irresponsibility, much less just, um, frankly, a dereliction of duty, when you are an elected leader, to play those kinds of games with human life and human beings. If you, want, if you think there is a problem, be part of the solution. What
2: is that solution? Can you understand the frustration, though, that Americans have about the situation at the border?
4: Well. It's not a monolith. There are, very, there, there are a variety of components to this. One is the fact that under the previous administration, they decimated a system that was designed to address immigration. And so we have been spending, in the last 18 months we've been in office, spending a, an incredible amount of time and work and resources to reconstruct that system. The first piece of legislation that we offered back in January of last year was for a pathway for citizenship. People are playing political games with that, and it's going nowhere. We're looking at the cause. Why do people leave home? Most people don't want to leave home. Most people do not want to leave their grandmother. They don't want to leave the place where they grew up. They don't want to leave the language they speak. They don't want to leave the place where they go to pray. And when they do, it's usually for one of two reasons, because they are fleeing harm, or because they simply cannot address their basic needs or the needs of their family to stay, okay? So part of what we have to do to address the issue is also deal with that piece of it. I'm in charge, for example, of of, of coordinating a what we call a root causes strategy. What are the causes of people leaving? So there are many facets to this, but. You know, doing it for the sake of a headline, what we're seeing with these governors, is, is irresponsible, and it's, it's inhumane. It's inhumane. Okay.
2: I'm getting the rap. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We covered a lot of ground. We did, yes. Yeah.
2: Coming up,
3: I sit down with Liz Landers to break down her exclusive interview with Vice President Kamala Harris. So, Liz, we just heard some of your exclusive interview with Vice President Kamala Harris. I know you went to interview her to talk about reproductive rights, but I was particularly struck by the Vice President's response to this effort by some Republican officials like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott bussing migrants out of their states in an effort to target Democrats.
2: You're right. That news was breaking Some of the DeSantis and Abbott moves happened the day before we spoke with her. So we knew we had to ask her about this. Right, exactly. And the biggest headline to me out of that interview was
3: just the way she responded to Governor Abbott of Texas's actions, as well as those of Florida Governor DeSantis, calling it a dereliction of duty and that this was a political stunt. What exact message were they trying to send? Could you explain?
2: Republican governors have taken this pretty aggressive tactic of sending migrants that have entered their states to more progressive strongholds across the country. But Governor Abbott and DeSantis made it personal to uh, some of the bigger figureheads in the Democratic Party. So DeSantis took people on a plane to Martha's Vineyard, which is where former President Obama vacations. And then Abbott sent a bus of people to the outside of Vice President Harris's home at the Naval Observatory in downtown Washington, D.C. So now this is having to put people like Mayor Muriel Bowser and um, the really small community of Martha's Vineyard in the position of having to house people and, and just figure out how to process asylum seekers in a place where they typically do not do that.
3: So can you just give me some context on where the Democrats are heading into the November election?
2: Yes. So typically a president who is in power, his party does not do well in the midterms. Democrats kind of feel like they are coming from behind, that they are the underdogs. Um, But I think one of the issues that has dominated this midterm cycle is this reproductive healthcare conversation. And I think that we saw something pretty extraordinary and surprising. Even as a political reporter, I was surprised by what happened in Kansas with a referendum that they had to uh, basically codify protecting abortion access into their constitution. And they did that. They kept that in their constitution there in Kansas. That, I think, has given Democrats, you know, wind beneath their wings Right now, the tiebreaker in the Senate is the vice president, Kamala Harris, because it's a 50-50 split in the Senate, and they have only a few-seat majority in the House. The Democrats want to get to 52 Senate seats because then they can overcome the two senators who are opposed to changing the filibuster right now, that Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, and then they could pass more of their um, progressive agenda, I guess you could say, Liz, can you just give me a quick reminder? What is the filibuster? Something to know about the Senate is that the Senate makes up their own rules and they can change the rules. And this is a rule that requires 60 votes to pass legislation. If you don't have the 60 votes, it doesn't move forward. And it has become the bane of the existence of both Democrats and Republicans in the last few years.
3: You also asked Vice President Harris about this recent bill proposed by Republican Senator Lindsey Graham that would institute a nationwide 15-week abortion ban. How does this move by Senator Graham play into, you know, the stakes that we just talked about this
2: November? Senator Graham introduced this bill last week, and this basically says that there would be no abortions allowed in the US past 15 weeks, except for in the cases of rape and incest and the life of the mother. So this is important because it would override states like California, for example, which has a lot of protections to abortion access and later term abortions. This would overrule that. And so the vice president was saying in our interview the Republicans are moving the goalposts because they have said that this should be left to the states. In fact, he wants to make this a national abortion ban. I think that most of the Republican Senate did not jump on board immediately with Graham's proposal. So I think that kind of shows you where the rest of the Senate is and and potentially to me signals that Republicans understand that this is an issue that they might lose on in November. So,
3: right, and as Vice President Harris pointed out, there are a number of people running for secretaries of state who are themselves election deniers. Can you just expand on that a
2: little bit more? Yes, we have been to several of these key swing states. I've been on the ground in Arizona and Georgia speaking with People who are Republican nominees in those states for positions like governor, like secretary of state, like attorney general, who do not trust and believe the last election, the 2020 elections, they refuse to believe that Joe Biden won. That is going to be a problem in 2024, potentially, because governors and secretaries of state in most places are the people that certify the election results. And that is part of the process of sending election results to the Electoral College in Washington, D.C., which then those have to be certified in Washington. And that's what we saw happen on January 6th as well. But, But there could be a real breakdown in this process at the state level, which is why we have been covering this.
3: Right. And the idea is that this might not just have ramifications for 2024 if these people win, but even for this upcoming election. Right. I mean, we're talking about, you know, conspiracy theories that are making voters feel concerned that their vote won't be counted. Right.
2: Well, we've already seen polls. Really, in the wake of January 6th, I think people started pulling on this that show that voters distrust the election process um, in this country, even though there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in these key states like Arizona or Georgia, which have really pushed uh, so-called audits, I would say, and, and recounts, that voters there still don't trust the election system.
3: So, as you pointed out to the vice president, Democrats are really up against this robust effort by Republicans to delegitimize the upcoming election. Are the Democrats doing enough to combat this effort?
2: The vice president's response when I was asking her about this basically, I asked her, Are we in an emergency situation with our democracy? And she said, Democracy is fragile, democracy requires participation. Um, I think that that the voters that I talked to probably would not think that that is a robust enough response. And I think that the vice president and the president are making a really big push on this idea that democracy is on the ballot, but it's a little bit late in my opinion. And I think that voters that I speak with, some voters feel that too, that uh, former President Trump and his allies have been laying the groundwork for really years now to undermine what people think and and whether people trust the elections. And when Biden got into office, he really focused on, first of all, getting us out of the pandemic and then other issues like infrastructure and this Build Back Better. There was not as much of a focus on democracy being in crisis. So I think that probably the message On this issue, could be stronger still. And I'm sure that there are voters out there, people out there who still want to hear more. So,
3: Liz, is there anything else that we should be looking out for in the next 60 days in the lead up to
2: this midterm? Well, I think this midterm election season is always a good time to be looking at people who want to run for president. And I certainly think that applies in my home state of Florida, where Governor DeSantis is up for re election for governor, but he's also definitely positioning himself to be a leader in the Republican Party. So right now we're working on a story for Vice News Tonight that will be looking at an amendment that passed in Florida in 2018 called Amendment 4, and it re-enfranchised felons in that state who don't have murder or sexual assaults or sexual offenses on their record. And basically since it passed, Republicans in the statehouse in Florida have been kind of fighting it and the reason we're interested in this is because Governor DeSantis has the authority now and the legislature gave him the authority to form this this election crimes and security unit which now exists and they announced just a few weeks ago that they had arrested 20 felons in Florida who had voted illegally in the 2020 election And these felons all have some kind of sexual assault or murder um, crime on their record. So that makes
3: them ineligible. In other words, this move by DeSantis may have a chilling effect on former felons who do have the right to vote, but maybe don't know or are scared to try because of what have happened to this group of 20 people.
2: Of course. And it's a really confusing process to begin with for these people to be able to figure out whether they can vote or not. There's not like a system where they can log online and easily figure this out. And so, yes, I do think that there are going to be and we have heard in our reporting that there are people who are now nervous about what their status is and whether they can vote or not.
3: Liz, thank you so much for your time. I'm really looking forward to that report and congratulations on this interview with the vice president. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Special thanks to Liz Landers, Simone Perez, and Sebastian Walker. This episode was produced by Steph Brown and Julia Nutter. It was edited by Stephanie Kariuki. Vice News Reports is produced by Sophie Kazis, Jen Kinney, and Adriana Tapia. Our senior producers are Jesse Alejandro Cottrell, Janice Yamoka, Julia Nutter, and Sam Greenspan. Our supervising producer is Ashley Cleek. Our associate producers are Steph Brown, Sam Egan, and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Evan Sutton, Pran Bandy, and Kyle Murdoch. Our executive producers are Adiza Egan and Stephanie Kariuki. For Vice Audio, Annie Aviles is our executive editor, and Janet Lee is our senior production manager. Fact checking by Nicole Pasolka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. I'm Ariel Dumras. I know podcast hosts say this all the time, but for real. It would be so nice if you could take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help other people find the show. Vice User reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week.